Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Lita, welcome to the show. Welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. I'm excited to have you today. I have a bunch of questions that I want to ask you and I want to learn more about your journey and I definitely want to talk about your book. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm looking forward to it. You have a a very interesting skill set, which I think is so needed today in the world, right? Especially when it comes to communication. I think there's this like massive communication gap. And when I say communication, I mean, it's so multifaceted, but I I think the, the ability to convey a brand, right? Through a story, I think be able to communicate and, and manage brand reputation or your personal professional reputation. I think there's a giant gap there. So I want to learn more about like, how did you get to where you're at today and, and what was your, your journey like? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> let me give you the short story. So I spent 20 years uh, working in corporate, everything from business development to marketing and a lot of focus on branding. And every time there was a company launch or a new product or service that we were involved in, there was always this conversation first about what is the experience this product, service, or launch is supposed to produce. So the idea of brand really is setting the expectation of an experience. And in 2008, when the market imploded and a lot of executives like myself found ourselves dusting off our resumes. I thought I would just go out and do what I had done before, but a colleague of mine actually said, you know what you're really good at is not just helping companies, but helping people build their voice and their value proposition and set the expectation of the experience of working with them. And personal branding back in 2008 wasn't really the buzzword that it is today, but it was intriguing. And I I started moving in that direction and found that it was exactly what the market needed. So I say I'm an accidental entrepreneur, um, never wanted to be a business owner. It was never my goal and my passion, but really can't imagine doing anything else today. So kind of got here. That's, that's the short version. Well, it's interesting, Lita, because I've talked to a lot of executives and business leaders on the show. You know, a lot of people are doing what they're doing right now because of either the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, or some other like major event that like totally rocked their course. So, you know, when it comes to your life, I mean, I I know like 2008, 2009 was a pivot for you, Mm -hmm. but over those prior 20 years, do you feel like, things were pretty linear in your life from a professional standpoint? Like you went to college and you knew exactly what you're going to do and you went to this job, to this job, to that job, or has it been much messier than that? (laughs) Oh, nothing has been linear. Um, And and I think that's probably what we find more than anything. Right. And, and I didn't realize how, how sort of random everything felt until 2008 when I looked back and said, how do I make sense out of this? You know, my, my parents were constantly saying, you've got to find a, a niche, you know, you've got to find that thing you're really good at. And I had spent those 20 years really bouncing around. And, and it wasn't because I was unstable or lacked commitment. It's I got bored really easily. So I would, I would get hired on for a big initiative. I would achieve those goals And then the option was either replicate it or maintain and implement a new strategy or new design. And that didn't interest me. I liked creating and ideating and, you know, strategically thinking. So I'd get bored and get recruited away. And not only did I change jobs, I changed industries 
each time. So from accounting to law, to architecture, to finance, I mean, my career looked like a patchwork quilt and it was concerning. And when I started my business, my biggest fear was, is this going to be a problem? But what I realized is in shaping the narrative of what those 20 years had looked like, I was able to tell a very compelling story about how diverse an audience I could work with, how many industries I had experience in, and how all that those changes made me who I am. And then really being able to drill down and say, my expertise is strategic thinking, design, and coming up with the plan, let somebody else implement it. And that learning was, was what gave me everything to move forward. Well, I think there's some younger people uh, listening to the podcast right now. And I mean, not necessarily younger people either. I mean, you could be middle of your career and have these same thoughts, but Uh mostly the younger generation, when I'm mentoring them or talking to them, you know, they put so much emphasis on like this life plan that they're supposed to come up with out of college where it's like, okay, should I take this job or this job? And I have this offer and that offer, but I don't know if this, if I take this offer, it might impact this. And if I, but I don't want to get pigeonholed and they get so hung up on these like decisions that they're trying to make, which, which seemed big at the time, no doubt. But do you believe that people put too much emphasis on, you know, decisions like that? And, and let me provide a little bit more context Two decisions that are good decisions. I'm not saying, you know, one decisions to do something crazy off the wall and then something else is totally logical. I think two logical decisions. Do you think people try to figure out their life too much and plan the unplannable? Well, I mean, I know for myself, I I really wanted to have it figured out. I was raised by parents who, you know, encouraged me to have a plan. So I was supposed to be a lawyer, um, told my dad I was going to take a year off. I had, you know, applied to law schools, taken the LSAT. I was going to take a year off after college, you know. I never went to law school, but um, I think there's a there's a security and a safety in having a plan, having having the steps that you know to take. And candidly, Steve, that's why I'm so attracted to the idea of personal branding because that gives you the lens through which to look through and make decisions. Otherwise, everything carries equal weight. Everything feels random. Every decision I made in my career was, well, that looks like more fun and they're willing to pay me more money and it seems more interesting. So yeah, I'll go do that. And it made sense at the time, but looking back, I mean, that was a lot of stress. But at the same time, had I had a plan that I would have mapped to, that may have been more stress. You know, when I started my business, a lot of people told me, which was counterintuitive, don't write a business plan. Let it evolve a little bit naturally and then create a strategy, which was not how I thought a business was supposed to launch. But again, best advice because I would have mapped to that strategy. And sometimes that that open-ended possibilities is what gives us the most, you know, opportunity. Think about people who would have missed out on getting into the tech sector or the internet because that wasn't a thing when they were planning what they were going to do next. So I think keeping some fluidity and being okay, not having a plan can actually reveal many more opportunities. Well, and I agree. And I, I think you bring up a good point. And it's almost like contradictory in a way, because, you know, I, I was reading a, an article recently about like structure and some people think, oh my gosh, if I have all this structure in my life, I'm not going to have freedom. But in fact, I think I would argue that structure actually allows you to have freedom and flexibility. Otherwise you're like running around like crazy all the time. You're <laughs> trying to make, you know, random decisions. And I mean, life's just a mess. And because of that, you can't go out there and do the things that you want to do because you don't have structure. But I also think there's this other side, which I agree with, like where we try to plan the unplannable, right? Where we think like, okay, let me just, let me try to chart everything out or you chart things out and it, it's the completely wrong plan. I think that fluidity is, is so important. Yeah. I would agree. And and that's hard advice as a parent to give your kids. I do speak a lot of colleges and universities. And the thing that I say that I'm sure their parents don't like me saying um, is it's not hard to find a way to make money. I mean, it really isn't. Making money isn't what's hard. Finding something you're passionate about that you can really get into and that's part of your calling, that's really hard. And if we open up the aperture and, and focus more there, the money finds you. It's not been my experience that it's that hard, but we tend to put the lens the other way and say, figure out how to make a living. And that closes down our possibilities. 
how do you know like what you're passionate about? I mean, because if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, I know certain things I don't like to do with work, Mm -hmm. um, but there's, there are certain things that I really love. I get excited about. How do you help people like think through that and and really like narrow down the options so they just don't become so dang confused that they do nothing? (laughs) Well, and, and that is the risk, right? Or that they sell everything and and decide that, you know, they're going to do something that is completely unrealistic. Passion is, is that thing that when we talk about it, we get excited, right? Our face lights up and we sit taller and our, and our vocal patterns get faster Then looking at, okay, so where are the opportunities within that? Sometimes being able to live our passion and express our passion is not a full-time job, right? It might be a hobby. It might be volunteer work. So the reality part has to come in at some point, but figuring out what you're passionate about, it sometimes does start with asking the question about what doesn't excite you, right? I do a lot of coaching with people who are transitioning from one career to another and you know, they might say, well, I enjoy business. Okay. Well, what kind of business? What about, you know, tree trimming? What about finance? And they say, oh, I would hate those, but I love the idea of healthcare. Okay. So what is it about healthcare? You know, you start going down these paths and digging and digging and digging. And when you get to the thing, you then say, okay, so is it feasible to then take that passion and convert it into something that, you know, you'd be able to provide for your family and your lifestyle? Or is it something that you're going to do on your free time or in a volunteer capacity and get that, that feeling that you need, but maybe it's not your full-time job? Well, and let me, let me give you an example here and, and ask you your opinion. So my mom, she, you know, she was married and then she ended up getting a divorce at, at one point and she had to go out and work, right? So she found a job, but the job wasn't sufficient to cover all the, the financial demands. So she had to go get a second job and she wasn't passionate about either of these jobs. I mean, she just, it was just a matter of like, I'm going to grind because that's what I have to do. And mm-hmm. after my eight to five, I got to go work, you know, at this place and do, you know, put in some hours at night. But it, once again, it wasn't something she is passionate about doing. So, I mean, do you think that there's sometimes in life where people have to say, Hey, look, now's not the time to pursue my passion. I just need to make money to make ends meet. Or is it like, wait, 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 before you go down the wrong path, you should be a little bit more intentional. And before you answer, I'll say, you know, cause it, you might be like, Hey Steve, am I walking into a trap? Don't be talking about my mama, you know, but no, <laughs> it, I, I use that example and we've talked about it before, but I, I'm curious to hear your perspective on it. And you could talk about my mama if you want. No, I mean, she obviously, <laughs> she raised a good boy. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, hey, we've all got to pay the phone bill. We want to put food on the table. We, we can't all just sell everything, live in a van and follow our dreams in that moment, right? But if you have a life without passion, days are very, very long. So one of the things that comes up a lot in the work that I do is my job isn't giving me everything I need it to. And I think in some ways we, we may set almost a false narrative around what work is supposed to do for us. It's supposed to give us personal, spiritual, financial, psychological, emotional satisfaction. Maybe, sure. <laughs> maybe it pays the bills. It keeps your family with healthcare coverage. It, you know, it makes sure you can have a lifestyle and your kids can go to the school. And that's why I say, you know, life is more than just a job. So maybe it is something that you do as volunteer work, or you have some other ways of fulfilling that. What makes me sad is when somebody views their work, if it's not inspiring and it's not aligned with their passion as the only place they can get that, right? So your mom working two jobs, you know, raising kids, that's a, that's a mouthful. That's a lot right there. So hopefully she had those other places where the things that she was passionate about, either she was planning for, you know, once the kids are out of the house and my, my needs, my financial needs are a little bit less, then I can launch into that career. Or maybe once a month, I go volunteer with this organization where I get that that satisfaction that I need of, you know, serving others, but we have to have that. I mean, as human beings, we're emotional creatures, but sometimes our job doesn't give it all to us. And I think we put a lot of pressure on our work sometimes to be everything. 
Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. I like that. I like that a lot. Very well said. Let, let's talk about another comment you made just a little bit ago about shaping the narrative. And it, it's interesting mm-hmm. because I think when it comes to business strategy, like when I'm helping an organization with strategy, and I was, I was just talking to a, a group just the other week, you know, I, I said to them, you can have the best strategy in the world, but the biggest thing that's going to undermine the strategy is the story you're telling yourselves. And it's kind of like what Peter Drucker said. He said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> and I think the whole idea is that if the story within the organization is that, look, you know, we've been doing this for 30 years, this is just the way it is. Or if the narrative is we can't grow, we've tried growing in the past and that doesn't work or, Hey, we can't go after these customers or we can't do this, or we don't have time for this. If that's the story, the story will always win. And I think in our personal lives, let's bring it back to, to us individually. You know, we all have a story that we carry around. And I've been thinking about this a lot personally lately is, is just like, what is the story I'm telling my world now? I can say, Hey, look, when I was a kid, you know, my dad left and he did. I mean, there was five of us um, at the time and he left. And so I can tell that story from a victim perspective and say, look, he left. And that's why my life is such a mess. And, you know, this is why I did this. And I got into trouble over here. And I, I can say that, right. Or I could, I could take the story and say, look, he left, but it made me a better father. He left, but it gave me an incredible work ethic. Cause I had to go out there and like make my own. And, and I think the story that we tell the world and we tell ourselves is so powerful. And I'm just curious to hear your perspective. And if this relates to the work that you're doing with like personal branding or branding and, and just reputation management. Well, it absolutely does. I mean, narrative narrative is language. Narrative is story. And we, as a human species, love stories. Whatever culture you think of, stories are how we learn. We learn through stories. So um, to your point, what I love about narrative and, and the way narrative gets formed for us individually, it transcends to others as well, but is that narrative starts with us. So when you think of corporate and you say culture, when I think of narrative for an individual, it's what we tell ourselves, right? So if narrative starts with us, then if you're filling your psyche, you know, your, yourself with negative self-talk, you know, I can't do this. I don't belong here. They're going to figure out I'm, I'm not good. Narrative then actually transcends into what you tell other people. So, you know, we've all had that experience of trying to buy something from somebody that we could tell they don't even believe in what they're trying to sell us. And we're like, yeah, dude, I mean, you wouldn't even buy it. So I'm not going to buy it. Um, And that's because what we tell ourselves leaks out when we try to talk to other people. And the risk there is that what we tell ourselves, which becomes what we tell other people, is what other people use to tell other people about us. So you can imagine, conversely, how powerful that is if we're giving ourselves all these positive affirmations. You know, I've got this. I can do this. I'm worthy. I'm valuable. And then that comes across when we talk to other people about who we are. And then those people go out and talk to other people about who we are. That's why narrative is so meaningful. And, you know, right now it's, it's kind of a buzzword. And when I named the book Control the Narrative, I mean, I had a sense it was a great title, but my goodness, it's like every other sentence out of everybody's mouth, because what we realize is if we're not shaping narrative, if like to your point, if we're not telling people the story of how they should look at our past, then we leave it up to chance that they might actually interpret it the right way. So similar to your story, when I launched my business, I looked at my career behind me and said, wow, somebody could easily draw some misassumptions by the nature of the work that I had done and the amount of change that I had had. So I'm going to be proactive and shape that narrative and say, 
gosh, am I a great resource for you? Look at all the different companies I've been part of and all the successes I've had and all the achievements. And, and I brought that narrative forward. And, you know, we know that people pretty much will believe what we first tell them until they see evidence of the contrary. So if I was telling people I could be trusted and I, you know, had a lot of credibility and I could had all this experience and then it fell flat, well, then they wouldn't believe me anymore. But if you shape the narrative in the right way and the narrative has credibility, I mean, you're off to the races. So how do you do that? Like do you sit down with a pad of paper and a pen and say, look, I'm going to just bullet point out my life and, and try to find, you know, the, the things that make me unique, the value that I've brought in through different experiences. And you write this stuff down and then you form a paragraph and then you memorize it or like, what, what's the process in, uh, in doing this actually? Well, I mean, I, I'm intrigued by your process because that's, <laughs> that sounds a lot simpler. Um, you know, th- when I work with someone or, or an audience, what I take them through is it starts with values, right? Because in order to build something that's credible, it has to be rooted in values and real values, not your parents' values or your community values or what your politicians or social media influencers tell you is a value, right? Or even your spouse, because their values are definitely influencing you. But I ask people to strip all that away and get really clear about what they stand for. The values that are so unique and special and meaningful to you that if we strip those away, you wouldn't be you anymore. Um, Some people call it like your moral operating system or your true north, whatever words you want to use. Your values are at the essence of brand and they're at the essence of credibility. But then your values have to be put into action, right? So we have to see that you walk the talk. We have to see evidence that what you tell me you believe in is actually what you do, right? Your behavior, your actions, your communication and your relationships have to match what you told me you stand for. Then I will start attaching credibility. So that's that's where branding starts. Um, and then it really goes into, you know, uncovering the reputation you have today. Because if brand is what we do and reputation is what we earn, then everyone has a reputation, right? So everyone has a personal brand. It's just whether you're intentional about it or you're letting the market define you. So the second step is really taking an assessment of where we're starting from. You know, so Steve, what's your reputation? How do people describe you? What do they refer you for? What do they consider your uniqueness? And we catalog that, not because we're going to, you know, point fingers and and highlight things you should have done differently, but just to get a baseline um, because we have to know where we're starting from. But the beauty of branding, especially personal branding, is about setting a vision right? What does the ideal end state look like? What are we working towards? And what we're working towards in this context is the legacy that we want, right? So how do we want to be remembered when we leave the room, when we leave the company, when we leave earth, right? Mm -hmm. When we're gone, how do we want people to remember us? And if you remember that brand is, is not what we did necessarily, it's how people felt about us, I think it was Maya Angelou who said, people won't remember what you said. They'll remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. That's brand. And I get to help people really kind of set, you know, the ideal end state. What, what do I want to be remembered for? And it's h- highly emotional. I mean, it's very charged, but it's a powerful exercise because in that learning is where you start creating the path forward, right? So now I know how to make decisions that company doesn't align with who I want to be known as. So I'm going to say no to that offer. That client could actually make people question my values. So I'm going to say no to that client, right? You start having this filtering process. And from there, you can now look back on your career and what you've done and bring forward those assets, those reputation assets that confirm and move you in the direction that you're headed to. Try not to get too philosophical, but that's really the practical side of personal branding is it's all about control. And I like that approach. And and I think that's a great framework. Do people struggle with defining what they stand for? I know that that might sound kind of funny, but 
you know, cause if you asked me like, Hey, what are some things that you stand for? Like I'd be able to, to name out some very specific things, but they'd almost come across as like generalities in some way. Like, Oh yeah. Like who doesn't stand for that? <laughs> um, so do they have to be unique, the values that, that you have and, and are they difficult to, to come up with? You know, they don't have to be unique in that no one else can have that. Right. But you have to be super clear on what they mean. So for instance, um, I did a workshop and I remember a gentleman said one of his values, what he stood for was integrity and everyone else in the room kind of nodded. And I said, okay, so what does integrity mean? And he looked at me dumbfounded, like, well, everybody knows what it means. Um, and he said, well, integrity means doing the right thing. I said, mm-hmm. okay, tell me more. And again, he's like, this is so obvious. He goes, integrity means doing the right thing when I'm told. And I said, aha, okay. So at that point, his definition of that word and mine diverged, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what I think your value should be. It's what is so crystal clear to you that you're going to be able to, first of all, attach action to it and then use it as a criteria to make decisions. So for instance, two of my values that I'm very you know, open about are gratitude and generosity. Happens to be the name of my TED Talk. Because gratitude and generosity is is who I am. I mean, I am very clear that I want to be remembered as someone who gave more than she took, right? And trust me, I take a lot. But <laughs> but that's really important to me, right? At the end of my life, that's that's the measure and the standard by which I'm I'm moving towards. Now, there's other values, of course, I pivot around. But when I have an opportunity, gratitude and generosity are the filters. I'm going to put every decision, every action, every social media post, every networking contact through. Because if I can't express gratitude, if I'm going to feel like this is something that is going to tip the scales in the wrong direction, or I'm not going to want to give more than I'm being compensated for, that's not a good choice for me. So those are not unique words, but the way I define them for myself and the way that I live by them is personal to me. So hopefully that clarifies. It doesn't mean you have to invent new words, but you just have to be crystal clear on what they mean. Let me ask you a question, Lita, because I watched your TED Talk. You know, the thing that, that stood out to me is that you articulate your thoughts very clearly. And I, I think the listeners can pick up on that. And you seem like a go-getter, right? Like confident go-getter in, in life. Have you always been like that? Or when you were younger, were you like shy or whatever? Or is this just like who you are out of the womb? Uh, definitely not out of the womb. No, of course not. I mean, I, I was not the one who always talked up in class. It, it's funny because my, my husband is a very quiet, reserved person. And he talks about being this class clown when he was in school. So I don't know if we some like, as people switch at some point. Um, <laughs> no, because I, I, I was definitely not this person growing up, but I found my space. I found my people. I found, you know, what I'm called to do. And I knew that the only way I was going to unpack this in a meaningful way was to embrace it fully, first of all, and um, and stay very consistent to my values and who I am. And the rest is all going to be faith. But no, absolutely not. If, if you knew me in high school, I was, I was certainly not, I wasn't shy, but I was not nearly as secure. So where do you think confidence comes from? What if somebody feels like they're lacking confidence or they're like, dang it, I wish I could speak up or I wish I could set Mm -hmm. boundaries with people because setting boundaries can be tough for a variety Mm -hmm. of reasons. Where does that come from? Does that come from being crystal clear on your values and like, you know, your principles and like your brand and everything else that you were talking about? I think that's all part of it. I mean, I think obviously having a good support system, being in the right place. I mean, it's hard to feel confident if you're feeling like you're in the wrong place. And I've had those jobs, you know, where I didn't feel like myself. So I didn't even know how to find myself if I didn't feel like myself. But yeah, for me, it certainly was realizing that in this short time I have here, there's an opportunity I could do something that's actually meaningful to people. And, you know, my faith says you're supposed to do that. But when I work with clients who struggle with confidence, it does come down to anchoring in those, those values, those assets, the things that other people sometimes tell us. And, you know, one thing, Steve, when I work with a client, I, I do a feedback assessment and it's, it's a form of perception mapping 
to understand where their brand is so we know what things to make changes on. And oftentimes those clients who might be struggling with confidence, when they see the feedback come in, it's very different than a 360. It's very different than a performance evaluation you might have in your job. All of a sudden they start kind of finding some confidence because other people are now reflecting the way that they see them and it's positive. And they say, wow, I didn't know they appreciated that about me, or I didn't know that they saw that I was passionate about that, or that they credit me with that. So sometimes looking out in, you know, outside in can be helpful. But if you don't have a sense of who you are and why you're here and the gifts and the value you're supposed to contribute, I can imagine it would be hard to find the kind of confidence that we, we should have. Does that, I mean, does that come over time? Or is that something that is just like an aha moment where you're like, oh, wow, I, I just figured that out. And, you know, now I know exactly my life's purpose and, and what it, I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, well, if you're trying to guess my age, I'm not going to, I'm not going to help you there. Um, (laughs) I I don't, I don't know if it comes with age. Um, I've met some young people who are tremendously inspiring. Some of them are still a little hesitant, but they know they're onto something. Uh, I recently shared a story of a young woman that I worked with who up and coming in an organization really felt called to become more not activist, but more of an advocate for a topic she was very passionate about, that she wasn't sure how it was going to play out in her workplace. And so there was this lack of confidence to really lean into it. And the more we sort of picked apart what the pros and cons were, the more excited she got and the more confident she got. And she's in her 20s. I mean, I, I you, you find young people who have, you know, just been inspiring and delivering messages or poetry or, um, or thoughts or art. And then there are people that I work with that are closer to the end of their life, and they're just starting to see how it all makes sense. And unfortunately, they don't have as much runway ahead of them. But yeah. I think as long as, you, as you're open to finding it, I, th- I think you have a better chance of finding it. I think it's more when you're closed off and that narrative is so negative and, and limited that it makes it really hard. You know, growth mindset versus fixed mindset, all of those practices. I think growth mindset really helps there too. Let's talk about your TED Talk. So you, you kind of touched on it, but in the your TED Talk, you talk about this power of gratitude through generosity. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? What do you mean by that? Well, I knew when I started my business that, and, you know, and and because it was part of my brand, I knew that I would always carve out some space to give back. I I didn't know what that was going to look like. I didn't want it to just be financial, but in, in all the years I was in business and in corporate, I'd always sat on boards. I'd always been in nonprofit boards, industry boards, and been connected to my industry or my community. So starting a business, I I remember saying, I don't want to keep that out because I don't have time or I don't have resources, but I didn't know where I was really going to build that. Um, And then sitting at a Denver Broncos football game on November 9, 2009, um, we played the Steelers. It was an awful game, but I heard a story, um, at halftime when the team brought some transitioning service members out onto the field to talk about what it's like to leave the military. And in that moment, I went, okay, wait a minute. They're they're saying things that I help executives and corporate professionals with. And you're telling me that our military don't even know this. And that just crystallized where I was supposed to serve. And gratitude and generosity was 100% present for me at that moment. And again, I had created the space for it. So I had, I had the aperture open and it just, it became completely obvious. And it, it's interesting. I mean, because one of my friends um, told me about this, this concept of every night before going to bed, mm-hmm. writing down five things that you're grateful for. And they have to be unique things. So you can't say the same thing every day. Like, oh, I'm right. grateful for the nice weather. I'm grateful for the nice weather. Which sometimes, you know, sometimes I have good days and I'm like, I want to achieve a little bit. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do six or seven or eight things. And then other days I'm like, I don't even want to do this dumb exercise. I can't even think of one thing, right? Yeah. But I just have a, a bad attitude those days. But I always force myself to do it. And, and now I, I think I've been doing it for like 580 days or I have like wow. entries. Every single day I do it. And um, it, it's been great because, you know, it really makes me pause and reflect even on those bad days that there's so much to be grateful for out there. And I think without that gratitude, 
you know, we get into this, like either the fixed mindset or the scarcity mindset. And I mean, it just carries over to so many parts of our lives and it could be, you know, very destructive or very limiting, you know, on, on our futures. hundred percent agree. And I, and I think this last year is, is a complete testament to that. I know when quarantine shut us all down and I mean, I had been on the road for weeks. I mean, I used to travel three weeks out of the month. That was not unusual. All of a sudden I'm home all the time and things are canceling and, you know, nobody's meeting in person and for an extrovert, that's really hard. First thing I did without even thinking about it is I made a list of all the things I was grateful for, not for some profound reason. It just, it just was the thing I did. And that really helped. I put it on my refrigerator and probably more so that I, that I wouldn't eat my way through COVID. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, just as a reminder that, yeah, things are uncertain and things are a little scary and we're not sure what this is all going to look like, but look at all the things. And actually what was really cool is my husband started adding some things to the list without being asked, you know, or told. And so it kind of became this running list that we kept during the pandemic that uh, I probably need to go find. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what happened to it. Yeah. Well, and that's neat. And, and I think, um, you know, having that attitude can help us really shape our future and, and take control of how we respond to different circumstances, like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in your latest blog or in the blog that you wrote, you, you talked about, are you in control of the opportunities you attract? And I'm just curious for, you know, your perspective to hear more on this. Do you think people are in control of these opportunities? And if they feel like they're not, how do you get there and how do you gain more control over this? Um, Well, I love the question because I think, no, most people aren't, right? Most people are living what I had lived, which was opportunities are sort of coming in from all different directions. And we're saying, well, that one looks fun. That one pays more. And we're making decisions in this vacuum. It reminds me of, you know, when Alice in Wonderland, when she got to the fork in the road and she said to the Cheshire cat, which way do I go? And he said, well, where are you headed? She said, I don't know. And he said, well, then it doesn't matter, right? Because if you don't have a direction, then how are you making decisions? And I know I did that. I did that for many years. And a lot of my clients struggle with that. But attracting the right opportunities is as much saying no as it is saying yes. And saying no seems to always be a lot harder, right? Most of us want to say yes, because we want to leave possibilities open. But sometimes saying no actually clarifies and crystallizes in in your mind and the person who's bringing the opportunity, what it is you're really looking for. I don't think we're also good at telling people what we're looking for, right? I I get those emails all the time where someone says, hey, I think I'm going to be making a job change. Here's my resume if you hear of anything. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, I I don't know. I don't remember who you are. First of all, Um, we've had a couple conversations. I don't know what you're looking for and you're expecting now I'm going to turn my credibility on and and introduce you. Like there's got to be a little bit more direction. And and that is sort of that shotgun approach people are taking and employers do it too. You know, we we're not very specific for risk of, you know, leaving something out, but, but actually specificity is where the opportunities are and being able to be more narrow and clear about what you're looking for. Make sure that that is what finds you and the rest well, just sort of falls away. <laughs> it, I mean, it's interesting you bring that up because it was just last week, I was literally having this conversation with a, a group of leadership. And in that conversation, I said, look, the, the biggest thing that we probably struggle with as leaders is the lack of specificity. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are in a position and you're frustrated with your team, you're like, oh my gosh, they're not performing. They're not ed- executing accordingly. They're, they're not meeting deadlines. The work isn't being done according to expectations. I often say you need to go back and look at your, you know, your level of specificity with them. Because I think so often we are vague, mm-hmm. right? And whether, it, whether that's in our leadership style or in our personal lives. I mean, because if you said, hey, look, you know, what do you want in life? So, so often we just use the generics. Oh, we want to be happy. We want to have a good family. We want to travel, you know, like, but it's so generic and it's interesting because, you know, I've been looking at a different car, right. That as my kids are getting older, we're, we're doing more activities, um, recreationally, you know, I need to find something a little bit more practical. And I was looking at, uh, this particular car and it's kind of like the butterfly effect. Like before I looked at it, I 
never even noticed them <laughs> on the road. Now all of a sudden I'm like, there's one, there's one. And, right. and then today in the parking garage that I always park in, um, I'm like, oh, there's that same model. And it's just, but I think like when we're very specific, our minds start going to work and you know, the opportunities start presenting themselves. Maybe the opportunities were always there. We just weren't specific enough to even identify them. What do you think about all that? Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And whether you call it laws of attraction or, or whatever, I mean, I also think you have to be intentional about s- setting that space for it, right? So when I talk about finding the military, and I don't mean literally finding them, but you know, having the idea that, wait, maybe this is a place I could, I could pay it forward. I could say thank you in a different way. It's because I had intentionally set that as, as a space, right? I knew that I was going to fill that space, but I didn't know with what. I didn't know if I was going to get into, you know, women's leadership organizations or, you know, some other community type um, activity. But when I was clear that these are the parameters, then it found me. Um, I know very clearly who who my ideal clients are, so I don't I don't waste a lot of time by getting somebody excited about working with me who isn't a, a good fit, and some of that then translates into how we show up, right? What does your website look like? What does your social media look like? When you're introducing yourself to other people, what language are you using? Because that's the language they're going to use when they introduce you to other people. You know, all of those marketing aspects of our brand. So the brand is first, the marketing comes second. Those have to be consistent with, you know, the strategy and the intention. Sure. And, and it does, you know, I have so many clients tell me, wow, it's like magic. All of a sudden, I'm getting calls from these recruiters or all of a sudden these, and it's like, it's not magic. <laughs> I wish it was, you know, I could go work in Vegas if it was magic. It's strategy and intention and, and being really clear about who you are and what you can offer and who you want to work with. That's well, the hard part. Yeah. And let's go back to a comment that you just said about saying no is hard because Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes we think, Hey, look, if I'm really specific, if I'm really intentional and I get super narrow and I say no to certain things, Oh my gosh, I'm going to miss out on all these opportunities. Right. Cause Mm -hmm. I'm saying a no to this, but I mean, do you think that's true? Or do you think by keeping the door open in so many different areas and not being, I guess, more strategic and making those tough trade-offs, do you think we're actually harming ourselves? We, we think we're doing good, but we're actually, we're limiting ourselves. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And, and I, I don't want to say it depends, right? Um, but I don't think it's, it's a, a static answer, right? So I don't think it's, if you always say yes, good things will happen. Or if you always say no, good things will happen. I think it does depend on the situation. I mean, there have been times where, and I share this a lot in the book, where I said no to things where on the surface, everyone around me was dumbfounded. Why would you say no to that? It's such a great opportunity. And I had my reasons and my reasons were very clear to me. And the reward was that I was confirmed that, right? It's yes, you should have said no to that. But then there are times where I think sometimes we use that as a crutch and we say no to things because they they may be pushing us out of our comfort zone, right? So, and, and I, I'm very clear about fear versus, you know, this is something like I could grow in. So, if something's bad or unhealthy or counterproductive, yeah, you should say no to it. But sometimes we we do that as an excuse when really this is an opportunity to grow. And And I have worked with some clients where my first thought was, you know, this, this isn't going to go anywhere good. And unfortunately, they were referred by somebody I really trust. So what do I do? But I ask myself, you know, is there something I could learn here? And there have been times I've said yes. And what I've learned just so refuted that initial thought that I had. And I'm so glad I, you know, I, I did lean into it, but I always lean into it carefully. Right. So I wouldn't jump off, you know, with both feet. I might lean into it slowly and take baby steps because I do have to protect myself and my brand, but I also want to grow as an individual. And the times that I've done that, I've actually looked back and thought, wow, I learned so much. Like what a fantastic experience this was. Maybe I don't want to replicate it, but I'm so glad I didn't let my discomfort, you know, mimic something else. So I said no to it. And I, and I think, you know, 
being very clear on what we're about and who we are, you know, allows us to make those trade-offs a little bit easier because if there's a misalignment, obviously we could say no to that. But to your point, if it's something that we're just scared of and we say no, I mean, that can really hold us back. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's hard to pull those apart. So having a good support system and people can ask you those questions and really get you clear on, you know, is it something you think is going to be bad for you? Like, could this be dangerous or could this harm your reputation? Or are you uncomfortable because imposter syndrome is coming up or you're just afraid that you don't know how to do it? Well, can you learn how to do it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. Let's talk about your book. Why, why did you decide to write a book? I mean, it's, it's a ton of work, right? And, <laughs> but I, I want to hear why you did it. And then what's the big idea behind it? So it's, it's book number five, uh, Control the Narrative. And it's a book I've wanted to write for years. And I wanted to write it because when I wrote my very first book, Reputation 360, it was all about how to build your personal brand. But I was just starting out. And it's a great book. It still does really well. But I, I have all these stories and, and there's so much more conversation to unpack that control the narrative was the one I wanted to write for a long time. It was a little scary for me to write this book. And I did it during quarantine um, because I share a lot of my own story. And there were many times last summer when I was writing it that I thought, oh, I don't even know if I can go there. I mean, this is really personal. And I'm, and I'm basically pointing out that I made mistakes or, you know, things that I didn't do right. But I kept leaning into it. Um, so I'm super proud of it. And I think the big idea behind it is if we're not controlling the way our story is told, then we leave all of that power and all of that misunderstanding and all of that interpretation to chance. You know, as individuals, we know that people perceive us certain ways, right? It may not feel fair, but judgments and bias and I've got a whole chapter in the book about the neuroscience of perception, but really people will always judge us and they will form opinions and they will have biases. Maybe those are based on misinformation or inadequate information, but the reality is people perceive, I mean, that's a human trait. We, we do that because we can't possibly take in that much information. So our brain creates these shortcuts. I've seen someone like you. I've talked to someone who's got a similar background. I know someone who does what you do. So I'm going to just sort of judge you based on that. And if we're not in front of that, if we're not mindful and influencing that, so many opportunities are passing us by. And that's really what this, the book is about. And then for anyone who's looking to build a brand, I walk you through the steps. But it's not just about building a brand. A lot of people are making pivots, right? Going from being a medical doctor to being a motivational speaker, an NFL player to being a you know, financial planner, making these big career pivots. And how do you do that and take those reputation assets with you as well as shed the ones that you don't need anymore? And then the third audience that the book really speaks to, which I suspect is going to be a big audience, is people who've had reputation challenges. Whether they made a mistake or they did nothing wrong, reputation repair is a lot of the work that I do. And it's very emotional work. It's painful uh, for my clients and there don't seem to be any resources out there. So this book serves that purpose as well of really providing the steps. And I think that's excellent, especially the last point. So here's, here's a question. What if somebody is like, hey, look, I'm not going to go out there and try to defend myself. I'm not going to go bad mouth this other person, but what if they have somebody within their organization or from their past or whatever, and they're just going around and they're spreading a narrative. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you feel like there's a time and place to defend yourself or do you stay silent and kind of let it work its way out? And you just focus on like, you know, acting and being the person that you know who you really are. Does that make sense? Like, that makes perfect some, sense. <laughs> you know, you leave an organization and they're like, yeah, this guy, I mean, he was a, a complete joke. Um, he was so rude. He was this and this and this condescending, arrogant, you know, and, and just saying all these things or whatever it is. Does it make sense to even go back? Cause it kind of seems awkward where you're like, actually, no, that's not true. I'm actually this and this and that. Or do you just say, look, let that person tell the narrative and over time, people will, will see the truth. 
Well, there's a couple things. Um, and I hate to say it depends, right? But there is no one, one set of you know rules that you do because sometimes, what, for instance, if it's happening online, it's very public and it's 24-7 and it's global. Sure. And to ignore it doesn't necessarily make it go away. But to the same point, sometimes addressing it doesn't doesn't make it better. It can actually make it worse. It's putting gasoline on a fire. But a couple things with a lot of the people I work with, and, and they're around the world. This is not just something that happens here. When a reputation crisis hits, either like you described, or somebody makes a mistake, they post something bad, or they have been that person and they're trying to repair it, there isn't a lot of other context So the only frame of reference that people judging or viewing this have is this negative narrative, right? So I always encourage people like not to expect that something bad would happen, but make sure there's a lot of context that exists to support your brand and narrative. So if somebody did come out chirping, that person's bad or they're mean, it's going to be this tiny little voice in the middle of all this positive, right? Yeah. The other thing is most people, when something bad happens, if it is online, the first thing they do is they take all their social media down, right? Because they don't want people to find different places to come in and keep that conversation going. So what they've actually done now is made it so that the only thing I find is the negative. And that's not the right response either. You can create a bulletproof reputation to a sense if there's enough positive, affirming, conscious, intentional content recommendations, endorsements out there. Sure. Um, you know, there are certain people like if 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 we heard, you know, one of our favorite celebrities was caught doing something really bad, there are certain people we'd go, yeah, I don't believe that's true. Right. I mean, let me see some evidence of that, because everything I've known to believe and I'm not saying celebrities are the standard, but, you know, there are people that we know that we go that ah, I don't think that's right. But if we don't have a lot of knowledge, we might go, wow, what a terrible person. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I, I like that. And I think, you know, that's within our control, right? Is mm-hmm. controlling the content that's out there, controlling our actions, you know, because you, you can't go and you can't change somebody else's narrative. You can't force them to not say things about you. Right. But I think there's ways to manage it. So good point. Yeah. And, and if it isn't a matter of addressing it, you know, there's, there's strategies for that and, and, and everything has to be thought through. If anyone's listening and, and is dealing with something like that, I would always say, as you consider a strategy, imagine the best outcome, right? The best thing that could happen and imagine the worst understand you're probably going to fall somewhere in between and make sure you're okay with that. Cause oftentimes we don't let ourselves imagine the worst thing that could come from that. That's great advice. Lita, it's, it's been great talking with you. Where could people get your book? It's on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And the book is called Control the Narrative, The Executive's Guide to Building, Pivoting, or Repairing Your Reputation. I like that. Thank you. Well, excellent job today. I, I think like the work that you're doing is is so critical, like I said at the beginning of the podcast. And I'm sure you're out there impacting so many people's lives. So Great job. Keep up the enthusiasm. Keep up, you know, the passion because I I can feel it. I can hear it and others can too. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been fun. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.